In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning on this second Sunday of Lent, and a great uh, grouping of lessons, uh, because what we have in the Old Testament lesson is uh, promises made, uh, and then in the epistle, uh, promises kept. Uh, How were those promises kept? Uh, This is ultimately a promise of Christ, uh, and he would be the one uh, over whom he would uh, would rule over all the nations uh, and the, the true seed of Abraham. But in the gospel, we find out that the promises of God are kept, are fulfilled, uh, come to fruition uh, in an unexpected and jarring way. So right there, just being convinced, I mean, realizing, looking at the Old Testament, going all the way back to Abraham, going all the way forward to Paul, of course, through the gospel, uh, realizing that God keeps his promises. If we were convinced wholeheartedly that God is who he says he is, that God is who he has demonstrated himself to be through his actions, supremely through the work of his precious son, Jesus Christ. Uh, If we were convinced that the Lord is good and that, again, he keeps his promises, he will do what he said he's going to do. Uh, Just that alone Uh, has the power to radically transform our lives and our disposition. So we could just stop there. We're not going to. Also, what we see uh, with the grouping of lessons uh, is the continuity between the so-called Old Testament and the New Testament, between the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come 2,000 years ago and start a new religion. The Old Testament scriptures then, uh, those are rightly viewed as Christian scriptures. It's Jesus who is in the Old Testament. It's Jesus who is spoken of. But what we have with Abraham is being in Genesis. uh, He comes on the scene in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, The chapters before that, the creation chapters, are good and very good, as God says. But then we get into the fall, which is not just Genesis 3. It's not just Eve uh, eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil and Adam after her. Uh, We also have Cain and Abel. We have, of course, the flood. We have the Tower of Babel, where the nations really are formed and the peoples of the earth are scattered. And the angels who were given charge and governance uh, over the various nations, the 70 nations, uh, go rogue. And instead of being God's steward, they receive worship. That's why we read in Scripture that the gods of the nations are demons. And so... Abraham is the definitive beginning of God's rescue mission where all the nations of the earth are going to come back under the sovereign rule of God that they can know his presence and love and be in communion with him. 
So God chooses Abraham to be the beginning of his rescue mission. It, of course, culminates with Christ. And God makes a covenant with him, promises him that he's going to make him a great nation. And here we see in today's Old Testament lesson that he's going to be the father of many nations. And that through his descendants, through the descendant, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And again, this promise, this covenant, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of Abraham, according to the flesh, according to his humanity, yet, nevertheless, Abraham's predecessor and creator. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Invokes and applies the divine name of God, Yahweh, to himself. And then earlier in John 8, uh, we see uh, that Abraham in his lifetime was at the very least conscious of the fact that the promises made to him were ultimately to be fulfilled in and through Jesus. If that's not continuity, I don't know what is. Listen to what our Lord says to his opponents. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And what's more is that this is not simply prophetic prescience on the part of Abraham. Because Abraham knew Christ. Not just knew about him, but knew Christ. In the chapter immediately following today's Old Testament lesson, Genesis 18, he meets him. He serves him. He converses with him. There's the visitation, the three visitors to Abraham. One is the Lord, which is the person of the Son. The person of the Father is unseen and invisible. And then Christ accompanied by two angels. So the promises made to Abraham, the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant... And then in today's New Testament lesson, Romans 4, the Apostle Paul explains in detail, in great detail, how Christ is indeed the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham and that the great nation, the great extended family which God has formed, constituted, is the church, the mystical body of Christ. For Jesus is again the descendant the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. Thus, all who are in him are part of Abraham's family, God's worldwide family, comprised of Jew and Gentile. And the badge of membership, to borrow a phrase from N.T. Wright, in God's family is not ethnicity, Nor is it any longer adherence to the law of Moses, but faith in Jesus. That is, faithfulness and loyalty to Christ. So St. Paul 
far from abolishing the patriarchs and saying, aren't we glad we're done with all that? Here's this new religion. Far from saying that Christ abolished the law and the prophets, rather he is showing in continuity with the teaching of his Lord how the patriarchs, how the law, how the prophets, how the Psalms not only pointed to, but are fulfilled in Christ. And in the gospel, we are reminded that the performance of the oath which he sware to our forefather Abraham, that's a quote from the Song of Zechariah, love that, that the oath which he performed is fulfilled in an unexpected and even jarring way. What happens in our gospel? In Mark 8, Peter cannot abide, he can't compute that the Son of Man, that the Messiah, the one who's going to bring things back, he's going to cleanse and restore the temple. He's going to win the battle. So he's going to clean house in the sense that the bad shepherds, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, He's going he's to make a correction. He's going to clean house there. And then he's going to win the battle over their oppressors. It's going to be a new exodus. In this case, it's going to be the Romans. They're going to get kicked out. And we can dwell in the land in freedom with God in our midst. Well, how can he do all that? And by the way, the Messiah is going to reign forever. How can he do that if he's dead? In the first century... In what's called the Second Temple Period, the idea of a crucified Messiah was an oxymoron. It just didn't make sense to them. It couldn't compute. That doesn't mean Peter's off the hook for his rebuke, because as we heard in our gospel procession, when God speaks to his son, we should listen. And maybe that should upend our expectations. Now, Jesus, of course, fulfilled every prophecy, every jot of them. He did cleanse the temple, he did win the battle over sin, death, and Satan. But he fulfilled his vocation, again, in an unexpected way. But it is not only Peter's expectations that are upended. Perhaps our own are as well. Perhaps our expectations this morning need to be upended. Not with respect to the work of Christ himself. We're quite familiar, hopefully, with the the purpose of Christ's suffering and death. But rather with his work in us and what it means to follow him. Today's gospel puts before us in shocking terms, in radical terms, what it means to follow Jesus Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.
This can be lost on us. I'll just speak for myself. This can be lost on me. Because we're so used. I've been in church my whole life. I grew up, you know, a baby. And I'm in church Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I mean, seriously. So how many times have I heard about the cross? The cost of following Jesus. Taking up my cross and following him. So I think the force of that statement, which the disciples probably passed out, right? It's shock. It's somewhat mitigated by our familiarity with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with our familiarity with his suffering. Also, in just everyday conversation, uh, taking up your cross is akin to bearing a burden or hardship, right? Things aren't going well at work. Well, everyone has this cross to bear. The cross does not indicate straight away a burden or hardship or, or difficulty, it's not just rucking. You know, these guys that they do the big hikes or they run 10 miles or they put on the weighted vest. You ever try to do that? It's hard. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. The cross is what? We can't forget what the cross was while at the same time glorying in what God through Jesus has, has transformed the cross to be. It was a means of execution. To take up your cross is to die. And so for the Christian, it's to live out your baptismal identity, which is that of one who has been crucified and risen with Christ. That's our identity as Christians. What does Paul say? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who liveth in me. And the life that I now live I live for my own entertainment and pleasure and temporal happiness. Oh, no, he doesn't say that. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. Now, when we talk about this, taking up our cross, we're going to talk about in a second self-denial. Because the first step right is let him deny himself and then take up his cross. None of this is so that you can get on the team. None of this is like, well, if I do enough, uh, if I do enough spiritual disciplines, if through prayer and fasting and almsgiving and the reading of Scripture, I make myself, you know, miserable enough and self-flagellation, then God will love me and accept me. No, this is not about you, uh, by your own effort, trying to transform yourself into a new creation or to earn God's favor. This is the response to what God has done for you in Christ. And we see this logic in all different uh, books of the Bible. One is Colossians chapter 3, where Paul is laying out the baptismal identity. He tells us that in Colossians chapter 2, that we were buried with him in baptism. And then in Colossians chapter 3, that's where he says, set your mind on things above, 
not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. God has done a work in you. He's transformed you. Your old life is gone. The new life has come. And then he tells us to get to work. What's verse 4? Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. The response is to enter into a life of repentance. So that we can be transformed in practice. In the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we live, into the likeness of Christ. Same thing happens in James chapter 1 which is a great chapter of scripture to read during Lent because there's a lot in there about temptation. So I'm, I'm going off script, but just bear with me. James chapter one, uh, there's this discussion about temptation and James has to say a word of correction that temptation doesn't come from God. The circumstances that God allows to come into our life, uh, our struggles, he is not using those things to try to drag us down the mountain, as it were, to pull us away from him. God actually, in his goodness, uses those things if we will be patient and faithful to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And then he, he kind of, he doesn't pull any punches and he says, you want to know where temptation ultimately comes from? It comes from your own disordered desires, your flesh. And then he says, um, Okay, well, let me just say it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It is finished, same Greek verb as when Jesus says it is finished on the cross. So that's a gestational metaphor of sin is conceived, it grows, and then what's the telos of sin? What's the end, the goal of sin? It bringeth forth death. But then he gives the positive. He's, a few verses later, speaking of the Father, he says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that is, through his son Jesus and through the scriptures and the preaching of the gospel. Of his own will. So redemption was God's idea, by the way, not yours. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So the transfer, God did that. He's made you a new creation in and through his son Jesus Christ. And then it's like, well, what do we do now? And there's a double therefore. In the King James, it's a double wherefore. It says, wherefore, let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Good Lenten discipline, silence. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And then the next wherefore is wherefore, and I, I love this. It doesn't get any better than this language. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, word which is able to save your soul. So you've been transformed. 
Now get to work in cooperating with the grace and power of God in your life. And becoming a new creation in practice. So our Lord says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I'll move quickly through this. Our excursus took some time. We are to work out and practice in the power of the Holy Spirit that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And part of that work, and in some ways the prerequisite for that work, is self-denial. Again, Jesus says first that we must deny ourselves. And self-denial, which is often a matter of denying the lower self, of denying our bestial impulses, of denying our inordinate and disordered desires, is emphasized during this season of Lent and, moreover, is essential to the Christian life. Self-denial is denial of the lower self, is essential to the Christian life. Or I could just say it's essential to life. I know we got all these type A's in here, so I'm preaching to the choir. But if you want to thrive in any aspect of life, in any arena, you must have the discipline and the wherewithal to choose what you ought to do over what you feel like doing. Talked about all the time in sports and athletics. You only practice, you only work out. When you feel like it, you won't be doing it very often. Right, Bob? You only went out and did the training run for the marathon. When you felt like doing it, maybe not a lot of runs. Choosing what you ought to do over what you feel like doing. Having your actions being a matter of the will, a conscious choice, a will which is strengthened and guided by the Spirit of God over against being a slave to your impulses and to your appetites. And self-denial or discipline is, is a trade-off. It's trading the present for the future. So we can look at it this way, and sometimes I think about this. Uh, and this is not original to me. Many have said this. But discipline is self-care for your future self. <laughs> so sometimes like future Matt, you know, when I'm in the line, when I'm in the drive-thru at Taco Bell, and I'm already, I haven't even taken one bite, but I, I'm already feeling the way I know I'm going to feel when I'm, when I'm done. I'm like, future Matt, really, I'm committing a crime against him, Right? So it's a trade-off. And that's sort of the logic of what Jesus is saying. Which life do you want? If you lose your life, if you're willing to lose this temporary and terrestrial life, then you will find life itself in me. And it's a good deal. No one chooses life. No one will enter into the age to come and be like, man, I, w I wish I would have just kept my life. 
my life was so much better. It's a good deal. That doesn't mean it's easy. That, that doesn't mean <laughs> that <coughs> in this life, every day, we're going to feel like, wow, I'm really glad I lost my life for the sake of the gospel. No. We're trading the present for the future, the temporal for the eternal, fleeting pleasure for eternal joy. So spiritual discipline, like any discipline, needs to be oriented towards a goal. And again, we discipline ourselves, we deny ourselves, not so that we can become a part of God's family. It's not earning a spot on the team. We don't discipline ourselves to punish ourselves. But as St. Paul says, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. Because in and through spiritual disciplines, such as prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, we encounter Christ and we are transformed into his likeness. In prayer, we are redeeming the time. We are being good stewards of our time. We are trading away maybe a little sleep, maybe some entertainment, in order to take up our reason for being, which is communion with God. In fasting, we are strengthening the will, learning to be governed by the Spirit instead of our appetites. This also happens to be true in giving. We've all heard of and probably engaged in impulse buys. But giving is not an impulse. It's a discipline. Choosing in worship as an act of worship to offer our money back to God. And what are we trading off? Presumably going without some temporal good because we're given to the things of God. Or even just having the discipline, not even just talking about tithing, having the discipline in our finances to trade short-term satisfaction for long-term financial health. Brothers and sisters, we're still, I gotta land the plane here. We are, we are still in the front end of Lent, right? It's only the, the second Sunday in Lent. And this is a glorious opportunity to train, to sharpen our spiritual skills, to take up these exercises, again, not as a punishment, but as a gift, looking at Lent, looking at the discipline of the church, the spiritual disciplines that God has given us as an invitation into a grace-filled training plan, a grace-filled regimen that will transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, world without end. Amen.